If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Millie Cawthorn. Today, more than 80 million people worldwide claim Irish descent. And the stories of Irish emigrants and their descendants can be found in the history of many global events, from the foundation of the United States to the French Revolution. In his latest book, the historian Turtle Bunbury explores a range of stories from this Irish diaspora. He joined us recently to talk about some of the figures he features and the events that shaped waves of emigration from Ireland. Putting the questions to Turtle was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. We're talking today about your latest book, which is The Irish Diaspora, Tales of Emigration, Exile and Imperialism, which explores many, many stories uh, from from Christian Irish missionaries who travel throughout Europe to to 19th century Peru and to an Irish governess to the last Tsar of Russia. So uh, before we get into any of these these figure stories um, and how you chose them, perhaps we could talk uh, more broadly to start off with about the concept or or the meaning of diaspora to set the scene for our listeners. Okay, well, I I, I was a a, a traveller writer for a, a number of years and I've always had one eye on the Irish connection to wherever I was traveling. Uh, I mean, I lived in Hong Kong for uh, two or three years and for instance there, there were seven of the governors of Hong Kong were Irish uh, when I was uh, traveling in, in India and, and Sri Lanka. Again, the Irish turn up, they turn up everywhere. Uh, and it's the same when you go back into the history books. Uh, you, you'll see them there. They're exploring the Arctic. They're in the deserts of Egypt. They are in uh, every corner of every empire. I mean, you know, yes, the British Empire, but they also turn up in the in the Russian Empire and the even in the Ottoman Empire. So what the book is, is a, a look at the Irish abroad. And we do, we use the word diaspora here. It's from the Greek verb to scatter. Um, and that refers to quite a broad spectrum of the Irish abroad, um, it's it's the Irish who live abroad today, of which there are about a million Irish-born citizens living overseas, most of them in the UK. Um, but there's also, it's a, the story of earlier emigrants and the descendants of those earlier emigrants. 
Um, and it, what that basically makes up today, about 80 million people or about 1% of the planet can claim to be a little bit Irish. Uh, so that's the sort of very broad uh, definition of the diaspora. Um, actually, I, I, and on top of that, it also includes the the, the story of the untold millions who, who've who've been and gone uh, from from life. Right. So clearly, a, a huge you know range and scope of people that we're talking about, and and that's really reflected in in your your book. And and could you talk a bit more about the, the process of choosing? I mean, there's 42 stories. Uh, how do you go about narrowing this you know scope down to people who really represent these kind of things you wanted to be writing about here? Yeah, and so uh, as you say. It kicks off with missionaries because I think that's where you have to start. I mean, I don't know how far back people have been, you know, coming to Ireland, going from Ireland to other countries since time began. Um, but the missionaries seemed like a pretty good place to take it up. And uh, there's a guy called Columbanus who who takes up the mantle from St. Patrick uh, and starts bringing the, uh, you know, the, the, the word of Christianity into the darkness of Europe in the, in the 6th, 7th century. So I was pretty fascinated by those guys and all those early monks and, and others who were going up to Iceland and places like that. Um, then, you know, I, I think you have to give it a, a broad look at Quite a lot of the time, when we think of Ireland and the Irish uh, going abroad, you think of emigration and emigrant, the whole emigrant experience. And yes, that is huge, and that's a massive part of the book. But there is also that whole imperial thing as well, uh, because you know Ireland was a part of the British Empire for a long time, and even before it was part of the British Empire, uh, a lot of Irish were going to uh, you know into into Europe with the with the the armies of the Plantagenet kings, you know, to, into France and Gascony and Normandy and places. Um, so I, I look at the, that whole um, imperial experience. I look at uh, the story of slavery. Uh, there was a guy called Richard Brew, for instance, from uh, Ennison County Clare, who was the biggest slave trader in West Africa in the in the, in the 18th century. So I think you you know you have to try and get a, a broad a broad look of, of those characters. Then people who are also in 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 Latin America again, the Irish were hugely uh, impactful there. Uh, the wonderfully named Bernardo O'Higgins. Um, who was the first president of Chile, uh, him and his friend Juan McKenna from, from County Monaghan. I have a chapter on them. So it's it's trying to get a pretty broad, broad spectrum of, of that uh, thing, the Irish diaspora. Right. Uh, and you've managed to include as well, there are many names that people might be familiar with alongside these really um, fascinating stories that are really unexpected, perhaps. Um, so how do you then go about setting them against the broader waves of emigration, the factors that kind of the flashpoints, I suppose, that mark the waves through this history? Well, I mean, the the, the, the waves, I mean, the princ- principal waves really are, um, you know, begin in the 17th century from, from, from an Irish perspective. And that that's the, so when it comes to the American experience, America has its wave after wave of people coming from Ireland. But they are very distinct groups of people, and certainly the first group of people are what you'd call Scots-Irish, okay? During, over the course of the, the, the 17th century, somewhere in the region of 200,000 Scots moved from Scotland to Ulster in Northern Ireland, okay? They're, they're mainly uh, lowland Scots, they're mainly Presbyterians. And they settle in Ireland for a few generations, but because they're Presbyterians, they're, they're kind of not top of the pile. The Protestants who are a part of the established Anglican Church of Ireland, they're top of the pecking order. Then comes Presbyterians and Methodists and Quakers and, and those guys. And then at the bottom of the pile are Catholics, uh, who have very few rights under the penal laws. 
So the, 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 the Presbyterians, the Scots-Irish, after a few generations, they kind of get fed up with this status. And it's strange. It's really strange because 200,000 Scots-Irish are, are roughly are said to have arrived in Ireland from Scotland. And in the 18th century, about 200,000 Scots-Irish leave Ireland and they sail for, for America for the 13 colonies. Um, and you'll find, I mean, for instance, the ancestors of at least 16 United States presidents are, are part of that group of people. And they, they're the ones who head up in the, in, into the Appalachians, into Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee and the Carolinas and all that area. Um, they have a, a very distinct distaste for any form of hierarchy. So when they get to America and the Protestant elite there are trying to impose a colonial hierarchy, an ecclesiastical hierarchy, these Scots-Irish are to the fore. And when, when you get to the Declaration of Independence, for instance, 11 of the people who sign it are Scots-Irish. They're either born in Ireland or the children of Irish emigrants. Um, John Dunlap, the guy who printed the Declaration, he was born in Straban in County Tyrone. So was Oliver Pollock, the man who financed uh, the Patriots. Uh, he's, he's also credited with inventing the, uh, the dollar sign, uh, Oliver Pollock, from Straban. So they make an enormous impact, the Scots-Irish, and maybe as much as a quarter of George Washington's army, they're in the Navy. Uh, there are so many different characters uh, to, to, to explore from that experience alone. Right. So there's a clearly really strong connection there in the early days of the United States. Uh, and one figure um, we might talk about in your book is Hercules Mulligan, who played a really important part in, in the American War of Independence. Can we talk about his role um, and what he kind of contributed to Washington's army? Yes, I zoomed in on Hercules Mulligan simply because I couldn't resist that name. I mean, it's just too good it's a great, name. great, isn't it? <laughs> uh, um, so he was born in Coleraine on the north coast of Ireland in County Derry uh, in 1740. Uh, the family emigrate to New York when he's a young fella, uh, and he sets himself up as a tailor uh, in the city. And he's basically making or adjusting uniforms for uh, for British officers, for the redcoats who are stationed in the city. And he's clearly very witty, very charming, uh, and gets a lot of clients. But he's also, at the same time, he's in the Sons of Liberty, which is a, a secret society totally opposed to the British crown. Um, you know, it's, it's all part of the Boston Tea Party era. Uh, he's very good buddies with Alexander Hamilton, the future founding father, uh, and he's he, like he's basically on every single committee that the Patriots found, uh, and he's the only guy who ever turns up at every meeting as well. Um, and you know he's he's very active in all this. When when they topple George the Third statue, uh, Hercules Mulligan is there. So it's really quite weird that the British keep on buying uniforms from him, but they do um, uh, right up to the mayor of New York, and Hercules. Um, trick, it's a very simple trick, is he, he has a very good drinks cabinet. Uh, and so he pours uh, drinks for all the people who come in and more drinks. And eventually they start spilling the beans on their plans. So for instance, the mayor of New York uh, told them about this plan to kill George Washington. Um, and you know he's able to pass the word back down through the lines. And uh, he actually ends up saving Washington's life twice, which is pretty impressive. Um, he has, um, uh, he's got a, a, an African-American slave called Cato who works for him. And Cato is the real hero here because he's the guy who's delivering the messages. He, uh, for instance, uh, in 1777, the British placed a very large order for light uniforms with Mulligan, which he sort of thought about for a while. And he realized, hang on, what are they up to? I think they're trying to advance on Philadelphia, which was a Patriot stronghold at that time. So he sends Cato off 
Cato brings the news to Washington. Everybody's able to get prepared. So really remarkable guy, but basically playing the, the you know the espionage game. It's tricky because if you are undercover, everybody else thinks that you're just a treacherous traitor. Um, so he has uh, all his neighbors. They're always looking at him very suspiciously. But the day, the morning after Washington's army capture New York, George Washington and Alexander, uh, Alexander Hamilton, they go into Mulligan's house to have breakfast with him. And Washington declares to everybody, this man is a true friend of liberty. Um, so he's saved. Uh, and eventually, of course, he will be immortalized in the hip hop smash musical Hamilton. Sure, yeah, a name hopefully many people will recognise from that musical, but obviously now for a lot more as well. Um, So we've got this wave of of Scots-Irish that clearly has a a big impact on American history in the early days of the United States. Um, Then obviously as we move a little further into the 19th century, there's... um, you know, a cataclysmic event in Ireland that leads leads to another wave. Can we talk more about what happens in the mid-19th century? Right. Okay. So the, 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 the great hunger or the great famine is obviously, the, you know, a, a pivotal moment in Irish history, particularly for the experience of the Irish diaspora. For millions of Irish Americans, the story begins with, with, with that event. Um, in you know the the, the broad figures uh, appear to be a million people died and a million people emigrate during the course of the famine in the late 1840s through to the early 50s 1850s. Um, so you know that's a massive uh, blow to Ireland. The population is down by almost a quarter uh, here. Uh, for example, in in 1847, half a million people left Ireland uh, that year alone. Primarily, they're going to the UK. Uh, and maybe to Canada and then on to the US. So, you know, an immense knock-on. Uh, you'll see it when we, I mean, we, we, Joe Biden, for instance, Joe Biden's ancestors were looking after a workhouse in Ballinar and County Mayo at the time of the famine. They end up emigrating. But it's across the board. It's, you know, especially more recent presidents. Um, 21 US presidents had Irish ancestry, including the last 12, uh, except uh, Donald Trump. Um, but when you look at the experiences, of, particularly of the more recent ones of, of Reagan and JFK and even Obama, it goes back to the famine era. Um, JFK was a, you know, particularly uh, Im- impactful. Uh, his family were very much involved in the, in the famine experience. Um, and it's really extraordinary when you look at his, his uh, team that were around him during, the, during his brief presidency, they were known as the Irish Mafia. There are people, Bob McNamara, Larry O'Brien, or um, Richard Daly, the Chicago mayor, all of them descended from famine emigrants. So, you know, that's a pretty extraordinary legacy in itself. Um, in, in the book, I, I mean, I, I talk about uh, the, the children of the great hunger. It's a chapter about the people who came over as children and what happened to them. Uh, one of them was Billy the Kid's mum. Uh, one was uh, Mother Jones, a very powerful symbol for, for feminists and the radical left today. Uh, another was Henry Ford, uh, the, you know, the car maker. So extraordinary uh, raft of characters that arrived on the back of the, of the great hunger. Right. And a really um, interesting element for me uh, on this was, obviously, you, you we've just talked there about the impact um, of emigration to the US. But, uh, you know, I think you say a, a lot obviously went to Britain, a lot obviously went to the US, but there was quite a large contingent went to Australia as well of, of young women. Is that right? Yeah, there, there, there were. There was, um, yes, the Earl Grey, the secretary for the colonies at that time, he had a sort of conundrum on his hands. Um, he basically, in Australia, they're saying there's not enough women right here. Uh, and in Ireland, the workhouses uh, during the time of the famine were absolutely chock-a-block with people. 
many of them orphans. And so basically, they launched what is known today as the Earl Grey Orphan Scheme, by which hundreds of Irish women were basically rounded up from the workhouses and put on ships and sailed to Australia. You know, it, it, it's a pretty hideous story, obviously. But when you stand in a workhouse, and I've been to them, and they're really cold, horrible, unfriendly places, deliberately unfriendly, um, you kind of think that if you were there and somebody said, would you like a passage to Australia, you'd take that option. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Um, but I also tell the story um, of, of uh, Brendan Bracken, who's an extraordinary man who masterminded Winston Churchill's succession as prime minister in 1940, a sort of Dominic Cummings figure of the age, um, and, and ended up becoming minister of information, the, the sort of London's answer to Goebbels during the war, the most influential Irishman in London in, in several hundred years, really. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So back to uh, back stateside then. Um, so we're in the mid uh, 19th century. There's obviously been this this vast wave that's, that's come um, from Ireland following the Great Hunger. Um, what does that mean for the, the conflict that's looming, the American Civil War? Can we, can we pick out a few of the, the figures there that you talk about and their links into this conflict? So basically, by the time you get to the American Civil War, an astonishing number of Irish participate. Um, uh, somewhere in the region of 200,000 Irish-born citizens take part in the American Civil War, which is an enormous number. But, you know, it was a job for, for the vast majority of them. Um, and incidentally, the vast majority of them fought for the Union, but there were plenty in the, in the Confederacy as well, right? Um, so, yeah, I have, I've homed in on, on, on some of the characters there that... Uh, uh, arrived in um, in it, on the back of the famine. Most of them were young fellows at the time of the famine, and therefore they came of age when the American Civil War came came through. I think you see that experience, that that military experience, actually then hardens for some of them, so that they are then the guys who who've become part of the Fenian Brotherhood, which is um, an American organization that commits itself to overthrowing British rule in Ireland and indeed in Canada during that time. So they get the training in uh, the American Civil War, and then they try and put it into practice in 1865, 1867, that sort of era. Not very successfully, it has to be said. But I think, you see, that's the, the big thing about the legacy, particularly from the famine, because uh, that created a deep, deep bitterness in Irish America that you still get to this day, where they felt that the authorities, uh, you know, at its most extreme, it's, it, it's accusations of genocide, which I do not go along with, but there was, you know, immense incompetence and you can understand the bitterness of people. And that feeds itself during the course of the 1860s and so on. And so therefore, what you end up is that this Irish-American community become the sponsors of Irish nationalism. Um, and and that goes right through, through the years of Charles Stuart Parnell and these sort of people trying to raise money. 
into the Easter Rising. The Easter Rising just it would not have been possible without funds raised by Clan Nagale, which was an Irish American organization. The same right through into, into the 1970s and 1980s. Noraid was sponsoring the nationalists. Today, it's the friends of Sinn Féin, um, you know, who are still getting massive money from Irish America. You know, that's that's can be uh, seen as a negative, but there's also positives to it as well. Uh, that that idea of the Irish Americans, that influence over the old country. You know, when um, uh, Jean Kennedy Smith, for example, JFK's sister, she had a, a very powerful role as U.S. ambassador to Ireland because. She felt Irish, even though she was three, four generations removed. It's extraordinary, really. Right. Uh, and it's a really interesting uh, phenomenon, I suppose, that you t- you've talked to, uh, about many of the um, figures who became very wealthy in the United States and, and powerful. Um, but there was also um, a lot of discrimination rife in the in the US in these in the times we're talking about can you say anything about about that yeah i mean well particularly particularly for the catholics i mean between 1815 and 1920 it's reckoned that about 6 million uh, catholics emigrated from ireland to the united states which is a massive massive number um it was notoriously hard to make an impact in 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 the us at that time it was a, a wasp culture the white anglo-saxon protestants um, and, you know, it was also the era of no Irish need apply. Those signs were appearing all across the, the United States from the 1840s. Um, I, I, one thinks of uh, James Buchanan, who was, whose father was actually from Donegal. He was the US president just on the eve of the uh, US Civil War. He refused to have uh, any Catholics working at the White House during his presidency. You know, it, it went on. I mean, there was a guy, I tell a chapter about a guy called Billy Grace in the book who was the first Catholic to become mayor of New York. Um, and obviously JFK would in due course become the first Catholic pre- president. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was very, very tricky to to, to make an impact for, for Catholics uh, for a very long time in the United States. Um, if we can pick up on Billy Grace there, um, just because I think he's a really nice example of, of the 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 broadness of of uh, the stories you're you're writing about um can we say a bit about his wealth gathering in peru and his kind of entrepreneurial if you can call that spirit because he was a really fascinating character he is a fascinating guy and i think you know he uh, absolute uh, entrepreneur <clears throat> i think I, I think he also represents uh, a, a group of people from ireland that left simply because they were adventurers they were born under a wandering star and he wanted to get out and see the world um, so he ran away when he was a, when he was a young fella and headed off to to the Americas uh, for two or three years. Then came back home again and actually tried to go to boarding school for a while. That didn't work out so well. Um, so he goes back and he ends up going out to Peru, um, and he makes his money out of bat poo, out of out of, out of guano, which is uh, one of the key ingredients for fertilizer and indeed for gunpowder. And uh, he makes an absolute fortune in Peru, uh, becomes one of the richest men there, along with his brother, uh, and ends up building all the railroads around and, and, and investing in all the mines and becoming... I mean, he, he comes across as quite a nice guy, even though he's an all-powerful tycoon uh, from that era. Um, he goes back to America after that, goes up to the United States, goes to New York, and makes such an impact there that uh, he becomes his elected mayor. Uh, of New York on an independent ticket. He's the mayor of New York who uh, opens the Statue of Liberty when the French give that to New York City. And he makes a big impact in New York on trying to stamp out corruption and and, and so on. 
really a remarkable, astonishing guy who just came from kind of nowhere to become, you know, one of these key figures in American history. Yeah, really remarkable tale, as as so many are. And and you mentioned um, Statue of Liberty there, which kind of gives us a nice excuse to perhaps talk about um, Ellis Island and the emigration journey that many made. Um, and you 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 write about a lady called Annie Moore in the book now. I know it's quite a short chapter on her, but perhaps we can say more about what she represented and, and this kind of um, late 19th century uh, emigration journey. But by the 1890s, the, the US are thinking, hmm, we're getting quite a lot of immigrants into uh, our, here at the moment. How are we going to sort of process them or control it? So they set up uh, Ellis Island, the emigration station on, on Ellis Island, just off the New Jersey coast. And Annie Moore, who you mentioned, is indeed, she's the first pers- person to be processed at Ellis Island. She's 17 years old. She's from Cork City. Uh, and she had sailed across the Atlantic with her brothers. They're actually going to join their parents who were already in New York. Um, and I think she was kind of probably slightly selected because it was a big PR stunt. The event was very much to sort of, they wanted all the all the newspapers were going to capture the event. And the story is that there was a great big burly German who was going to be first off the ship and was going to get the honour of being the first person processed and that he had one foot on the gangplank ready for takeoff and uh, and then the, another Irishman grabs him by the coat and goes, hey, ladies first, <laughs> um, and says, step out, little girl, and, and Annie Moore goes on ahead of him. Um, but and she did. I mean, she became extremely famous. I think she's a household name in, in, in America to this day. Um, but yes, I mean, she, you know, what she represents is pretty amazing that, uh, that well, the immigrant experience, not it doesn't have to be Irish, but she particularly represents that Irish experience. That by, I mean, by the time she arrived, 2% of uh, the US population was born in Ireland, but another 6.5% were Americans who were born to Irish parents. So it's starting to make a massive impact. And that's why, I mean, today, somewhere in the region of 40 million Americans uh, have some form of Irish ancestry. Right. Uh, And we've already spoken about how um, the lineage kind of plays out in terms of um, White House history. Perhaps we can talk about that a bit more in terms of how presidents have perhaps lent on various aspects of their um, Irish heritage and what that's meant for the presidency. Well, I mean, uh, it's been enormously useful for some of the presidents, particularly in recent times. I mean, some of them disowned it initially. Reagan uh, didn't think it was going to be useful for him, and he pretended that he wasn't Irish for a long time. And then he realised that, hang on, actually, maybe by being uh, Irish, I can woo some of those sort of uh, Democrats who are thinking about becoming Republicans. And he did that, and it worked very successfully for him. And he, you know, came to Ireland and stood in Ballyporeen, where his ancestors had allegedly came from. Uh, Barack Obama did the same, a very successful trip to Ireland in 2011, where he goes to uh, Monegal uh, on the on the Tipperary leash border, where or Offaly border, where he's uh, from, and he goes and has a pint of Guinness in Ollie Hayes pub, uh, and this is the place where his ancestor, a guy called Joseph Carney, a shoemaker, uh, had lived, and he he stood up and famously said, "My name is Barack Obama of the Monegal Obamas, and I've come to find the apostrophe we lost somewhere along the way." It was a great line. Um, um, so, you know, and then, of course, um, Joe Biden. We all have 16 great-great-grandparents. Um, 10 of Joe Biden's great-great-grandparents were Irish. So, you know, that's pretty uh, remarkable in itself. I mentioned the guy who ran the Ballinar workhouse during the, the Great Hunger. Uh, another one whose name almost rivals Hercules uh, Mulligan was called 
Ambrose Finnegan, um, and he was the son of a blind fiddler. And actually, he was a grandson of a shoemaker. So I I did think that when Joe Biden uh, got elected, having referred already to Barack Obama's ancestor, who was a a shoemaker, it was surely a golden hour for the Guild of Irish Shoemakers to have (laughs) not one but two uh, representatives in the Oval Office. Indeed, what prestige. (laughs) So we've we've obviously um, talked a lot uh, today about the um, enduring US connections, the the, uh, variety of waves that went from Ireland to the US um, throughout history. But your book does, um, it's important to say your book does cover a a vast array of stories and we've got Paraguay, we've got people in Russia. Is is there anything else you'd like to say about the the nature of Irish emigration and the way it's represented in your book? Um, I think you're 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 bang on. I mean, it does it does go beyond uh, the Americas. So yes, a lot of stories are about the Americas. But I think the nature of Irish immigrants is people are going all over the place. And in, in only yesterday, I was speaking to a large group of Irish people in Dubai, and people have been going to the Middle East for a long time from Ireland. Um, I think that you know some characters we uh, choose not to not almost to disown sometimes. Uh, and I've rather controversially reclaimed some of them. Lord Hawhaw, for instance, who is famous uh, during World War II because he hosted his own English-language radio show uh, broadcast live from Adolf Hitler's Hamburg, Germany calling, Germany calling. Um, and, you know, he grew up in Galway and his, his family were from Mayo, so I, I've, I've put him into the mix. Um, but I also tell the story um, of, of uh, Brendan Bracken, who's an extraordinary man who masterminded Winston Churchill's succession as prime minister in 1940, a sort of dominant Cummings figure of the age, um, and, and ended up becoming minister of information, the, the sort of London's answer to Goebbels during the war, the most influential Irishman in London in, in several hundred years, really. Um, when, when he died, Churchill wept, as Churchill was prone to weeping. But um, Churchill wept when he thought his friend Brendan Bracken, the Australian, had died because he, he, th- he was convinced that Brendan Bracken was Australian because Bracken had told him he was Australian. In fact, uh, Brendan Bracken, the Minister of Information during World War II in London, was the son of a sworn member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, uh, born in County Tipperary, he was, and his father had also founded the GAA, um, the, you know, the main sporting body here in Ireland. So uh, I couldn't resist telling his story either, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. And it really is a a fascinating uh, array of characters and um, figures. And we haven't even talked about my favourite. I know it's another American, but Little Al Cashier. Um, Ah, Yes, exactly. Well, Little little Al Cashier, uh, remarkable indeed. One of the bravest soldiers in the American Civil War, um, who was uh, much admired by all uh, the the young private's colleagues. And then many decades later was revealed to be uh, a woman... um, who was from County Louth, um, uh, had just lived a discreet, discreet life, and had just identified uh, as a as a as a man during the course of her life. Uh, so yeah, really uh, brave and 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 wonderful uh, standalone individual. Yeah, that story is definitely one of my favourites, and and there's many many more in the book. So um, I, I hope people will enjoy it. I hope people will, will buy it. And and um, yeah, thanks so much, Turtle, for your time in talking to us about it today. You're most welcome. Thank you, Alna. That was Turtle Bunbury. The Irish Diaspora, Tales of Emigration, Exile and Imperialism is published by Thames and Hudson and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. <laughs>